0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, your American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our co-host, Dr. Sajan Bhakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hi. And uh, we are here with a special guest, uh, Mr. Rick Carvello, who's here to help us talk about COVID.
1: Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be. Is right
2: here as a part of American's family Help is on the way, got a unit en route No matter the problem, when in doubt we send them out Sure as the sunrise. sure as I bust this rhyme Ten minutes or less, every call, every time This is my career path, this is what I do The double A's, red, white, and blue Get your call on, here
3: comes American
2: Get your lights on,
3: here comes American
2: Get your gurney on, here comes American Get your gloves on, here comes American
0: Get your save on Um, so, Rick, tell us about yourself. I'm Rick Carvello. I'm
3: the current um, risk and compliance officer here at American Amos. I started working here in 1984 and um, had lots and lots of roles. And my current role is overseeing our risk management program, which includes employee injuries, employee exposures, insurances, and such. And I've been very busy lately dealing with COVID. And so, so far, we've transported 934 known COVID patients. Um, we've had a total number of 1,997 9, employees who've been on these calls, and we currently have 24 employees who, are, who have tested positive for COVID, with 13 of those um, have returned to work. Um, unfortunately, we've seen the number of COVID patients we've had double every month since we started tracking them in March. And um, the good news is through August – we have had the same number per day as in July. So for the first time, we finally plateaued, which is great to see.
0: That's fantastic. You know, that's one of the things that we're looking into, Rick, is like, have we finally plateaued? Like, is our peak in Fresno County finally gone down? And so I think time will tell in the next week or two, but it's very interesting that you're seeing those numbers.
1: It's only August 6th, so hopefully, hopefully <laughs> these numbers will hold.
3: And the way the reporting works, I still, I still will get a few more reports from patients transported in July, as well as some of the first days in August as well. So we'll see where it goes. But for now, I'm somewhat hopeful, optimistic, which is sort of nice, because I haven't had much since this
0: began. When, what I like to hear too, is that yes, our employees are getting sick with COVID, but they're coming back, right? So we haven't had any deaths, and people are coming back to work, and we already have 11 back at work. And so this is, we're seeing this in the hospital too, nurses and doctors getting COVID, and then they're getting well, and they're coming back. And so that's really, I feel like a positive.
3: Yeah, our employees who come back have been doing great. So we're so happy with how well they're doing. And what is the American Ambulance Policy for
2: returning to work?
3: Uh, We're currently using the CDC's recommendations for system-based testing. And so with that, basically, as long as their symptoms are in check based off of the CDC
0: requirements, then they're able to return to work when their physician says so. Right. And it's 10 days, 10 days, no symptoms. So 10 days, no fever, no cough, um, and not using any antipyretics is uh, the latest CDC recommendation.
3: Yeah, it's 10 days since the first um, initial symptom. And then from that point forward, um, a febrile for a certain period of time, as well as their symptoms need to be improving.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story with us. And uh, we're going to talk about more about COVID. Okay, Sajin, so tell us about uh, the another, other stats like COVID positive people in Fresno County, California, et cetera.
2: So we'll start with worldwide cases. We're now over 20 million cases uh, in the world, attributing to about 710,000 deaths. In the U.S., we're at about 4.8 million cases with 159,000 deaths. In California, we are counting about 533,000 cases with just under 10,000 deaths. And in Fresno County, we're about 16,272 cases with about 157 deaths.
0: And this is all data as of August 5th. I know this rapidly changes as reporting um, comes in. Let's talk about pathophysiology. Any new symptoms you guys are seeing for COVID? I feel like every other minute there's a new symptom coming out. You know, it's not just fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath anymore. What else are you guys seeing and finding?
1: I'm seeing tons of GI symptoms, a lot of vomiting and diarrhea. Um, And then almost every single truly COVID positive person has a loss of taste and often loss of smell. And sometimes the loss of taste is kind of hanging on for a few weeks, as well as the shortness of breath. Correct. What about you, Sajin? Any other symptoms you're seeing?
2: I think we talked about last time some of the skin changes that we can see. I've actually been seeing that quite a bit more also um, in addition to the shortness of breath.
0: Hmm. Um, yeah, one thing um, we want to just reinforce as always is PPE. You know, we need to wear our PPE everywhere and it's just part of our work outfit nowadays, our work uniform. So when you go to work now, almost all of us have a PPE bag and we show up with our stuff. I know in the unit, you guys have a PPE bag. Um, so like, let's just uh, reinforce that on every single call, you're going to be wearing your N95 and your goggles, right? So you have eye protection and you're gonna have a mask on and that is an N95 mask. And then you're gonna be using gowns, right? So I would recommend wearing gown anytime you can. And I know they're hot and I know they're, um, but if you have them in your bag and you're on a patient, wear them if you can. So um, you have the PPE. It's a luxury to have PPE. I have lots of people I know in other states that don't have PPE and would love to have your gowns. And so since we have them, let's use them. But the official policy is gowns with aerosolizing procedures, right? Gowns with bagging, gowns with CPR. Um, Wear those gowns. They protect your clothes. They protect you. Um, But in that six-foot ring, you have a patient, everybody, no matter if it's a car accident or a broken foot or a cough, you're going to have on an N95 and eye protection.
1: Now, if you're giving a neb, is that considered an aerosolizing procedure? Yes, okay, yes, so it is. For that too,
0: and uh, we've actually really decreased our nebulizer use. And there's a you know a special memo out from the EMS agency because of that. But yes, yeah, so anytime you're nebulizing um, a medication, anytime you're bagging somebody, basically anytime you're messing with that airway, think about aerosolizing procedure, and that's really high risk to the medic because you're in an enclosed space and that ambulance. And so really wear that gown, keep wearing your mask, and you can wear a face shield even on top of all that, which I know we do a lot of um, too at the hospital.
2: But Danielle, what if the patient doesn't say they've had a fever? They really, really say, I really haven't had a fever. I checked my temperature. You can check my temperature. I haven't had a fever, so I can't have COVID.
0: Right. So that's a great question. You know, a lot of people come up and say, why aren't we checking temperatures? Like when we show up on scene, why aren't we checking temperatures? And the reason is that about 20% of patients with COVID are not going to have a fever and they're not going to have a fever at the time of presentation. And for all you know, do they take Tylenol two hours ago? Did they take Motrin four hours ago? Are they on antipyretics? And because COVID has GI symptoms and skin symptoms, they're not always going to have fevers. So I am worried that if we start putting thermometers to take temperatures on every unit, that you're going to have a false sense of security you're going to say, oh, this person just has a sprained ankle and they don't have a fever. I don't need to wear all my stuff. And that is false, false, false. So what I would like to recommend is you got to think about this like the 1980s when HIV came out, right? HIV was an unknown disease. It didn't even have a name. We knew people were getting sick. We didn't know how, but we knew it was blood related. So you know, 25 years ago, nobody wore gloves. EMS did not wear gloves. Your doctors did not wear gloves. And then gloves became a thing. We had to wear gloves all the time. It became universal precautions. Gloves at all cases, right? No matter what their complaint was, was gloves. Now we think nothing of it. If you walk into your doctor's office and they don't put on gloves, you're kind of like, whoa, what's going on? Like gloves have just become a thing. For the same thing with covid you have to assume everybody has HIV, and that's why we all wear gloves. You have to assume everybody has COVID. So when you go on every single call, you assume everybody has COVID. When you go visit your grandma, assume she has COVID. You go visit your aunts and uncles, they probably have COVID. So I think you have to just assume that in America, we all have COVID right now and treat everybody like that. So you need to wear your mask. You stay six feet apart. When you're going inside the ring and taking care of a patient, you need to have your N95 on, have your eye protection, have your face shield, have your gown. You could just assume they all have COVID even if they don't have a fever. Sorry, Sajin I kind of got off on my soapbox there, but hopefully that answered your question.
2: And let's not forget that wearing mask is also for the protection of people around you too. You may feel comfortable with somebody you think is a low risk for having COVID, but you have definitely been exposed before and you don't want to be spreading it to other people.
0: So those are the times where we need to be really careful when we're with people we're comfortable with and you are kind of getting that old sense of complacency that there are buddies, there are family members, there are partners, but we really need to protect them and protect ourselves.
2: I think the other thing we also have to think about is how we're collecting temperature as data points. Um, In the hospital, we've been using the infrared thermometers and we know from experience that those are not the best way to get a sense of somebody's uh, internal core body temperature. And it's great as a screening for the general public and for a lot of places uh, to use as an initial screening in addition to symptoms. Um, but I think in our practice, in our profession, where we're coming into these high risk patient populations, we really don't need that data point. We should just assume that everyone has COVID.
0: Correct. Um, Now we have these frequently asked questions. A lot of people have been sending in questions to some of the operations crew at American and at the hospital, we get these a lot. So I'd like to just go through some of these questions. Um, For example, someone says, Hey, I just tested positive for COVID. Like what medications do I need to have on hand? Like, what am I going to need? What do you guys think?
1: So the main medication you need is lots of water and like warm liquids, to be honest. But if you have a really high fever, you can treat it with acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, or um, ibuprofen, which is Motrin or Advil. And either of those are fine. But in all honesty, and this is my personal belief, but if you have a little bit of a fever and you're not that miserable, just try to sweat it out because that is your body's way of trying to fight this virus. Other than that, if you're really short of breath, you might need some um, some inhalers, like some albuterol inhalers, for example. We've been using a lot of steroids in the hospital nowadays. There's very little information so far about using steroids outside the hospital, like steroid inhalers as an outpatient. I know that some people are starting to try it out, but that's not mainstream yet.
0: Right, and then when other questions come up, is you know I have COVID or say I've been exposed to COVID and waiting for my test results to come back, and then how do I keep the other people in my house safe from getting this? And that is a true concern, right? A lot of people have kids; they maybe have parents that live in their home. Like who else lives with them? Maybe a roommate. So, what advice can we give um, people for if I've had COVID or been exposed to COVID and just waiting for my test? I'm quarantining at home. What can I do to keep the others safe?
2: So the social distancing measures apply to everyone. Um, Typically, we've felt safe in our homes with the people who we live around. But if you're starting to have symptoms that other people in your household are not, then it's really important to maintain that six feet distance, wear a mask at home, wear gloves at home, wipe down any surfaces that you come in contact with that somebody else might come in contact with. Um, What I've been telling people is that the place that we have the most chance for contamination is the bathrooms. Um, so if you have a separate bathroom, that would be the best thing. If you don't, then using that bas- bathroom and wiping down everything completely after you're done using it is, is really important.
0: Yeah, and I think also like um, try to eat by yourself. Like don't share a table um, while you're eating, you know, have your own set of utensils, plates and food. Don't like share big pots of food with anybody because we don't want our saliva to get on anything. And then I would also consider if you have very high risk household members, like say you have someone who's getting chemo, or say you have someone who has immunocompromised from another state, like maybe getting them out of the house. So can they go stay with somebody else who doesn't have COVID? Or do you need to get out of the house and self isolate? Um, But I feel like if your people who you're sharing a house with are not super high risk, and if they get COVID, they'll probably do okay. But if your 85 year old grandpa probably lives with you, you might want to say, hey, time for grandpa to live with somebody else right now, while you're isolating. What about the, um, I've been exposed to COVID um, and I have no symptoms there anything I can do to prevent getting COVID? Nothing's really
2: been shown to prevent you from developing symptoms once you come in contact with it. We know that typically on average, it takes about five to six days of an incubation period to start developing symptoms if you've been exposed to enough of a viral load. And that's not, always the case, though. It could happen as late as two weeks later. And during that time after you've been exposed, the most important thing is just to isolate yourself and keep a close eye on any symptoms you may be having. For young people, that may be something as simple as a slight cough and a runny nose. And it's going to be really hard. But in that time period, you should really not go shopping, don't hang out with anybody, keep your mask on, keep your gloves on um, until either that time period has passed and you don't have any symptoms or you can be tested negative or a combination of the two.
0: And what about herd immunity? You know, we hear a lot of this in the news. We hear a lot of this talking like, hey, are we finally going to achieve herd immunity um, with COVID? Um, So let's just make sure everybody remembers what herd immunity is. So herd immunity occurs when enough people become immune to the disease so that the spread is unlikely. So, um, That way, the entire community is protected, even those who are not um, themselves immune. This is usually through vaccination, but also can be through natural infection. Like you get herd immunity, but enough people have the disease. Um, So what do you guys think about herd
1: immunity and COVID? It's going to take a lot of people to get COVID in order to have herd immunity. Over 70% of the entire U.S. population would have to get it and survive to have herd immunity, that's a huge proportion of our population. Right. That and means we're going to have over 200 million people get infected. Um, so that's, those are big numbers. So I don't.
0: Which wouldn't overwhelm our healthcare system yeah. and create a lot of deaths. And so I think getting herd immunity would cost Americans a lot of lives. Um, the other problem, um, what I've been reading about is that it's really unclear yet if infection with COVID-19 will make you immune to future infection. So, you know, Rick shared that like 11 people are back at work, but they're still going to be wearing N95s and still going to be wearing eye goggles because we don't know if they're actually immune to this. We don't know how long those antibodies last. Research suggests that after infection with some coronaviruses, you can get reinfected with the same virus. And now it might be more mild and maybe only happen in a fraction of people, but that's still another risk.
1: But we know this with influenza, right? You can get the flu one year and then get the flu again that same year. It's just going to be a slightly different strain. And coronaviruses are also viruses. They also mutate. There will be thousands of different mutations. And so I don't see why you wouldn't be able to get it again. It would just be a different, slightly different strain.
0: Right. And so that's why um, I don't think herd immunity is our um, answer in the future. Um, Sajjan, tell us uh, any vaccine update you have.
2: So, there are several different vaccines um, currently undergoing human trials. And uh, we talked a bit about last time about the fast track process and how there are basically five uh, different vaccines that are kind of pushing ahead of everybody else. And basically, right now, there are six uh, different vaccines in phase three trials the part where they're really distributing the vaccines to a large number of people we are going to see any major adverse effects and also to see if and for how long these people develop immunity for. And the good news is that the different vaccines all have different mechanisms of action. So maybe one vaccine will show some development of an immune response for a few months, or be able to keep the symptoms at bay for a little bit longer. And we may need a combination of the vaccines. We just don't know yet. Um, But it's good to have a few different options. Also, in terms of production, we need to make sure that we can get enough of the vaccine out. So it's great if there are different vaccines that use different molecules that maybe we can get um, all at the same time to help as many people as we can.
0: I think one of the things um, people get very hopeful, oh, a vaccine is already in trials. But remember, we need to know how long this injectable medication will last in your body. So it takes time. Because if we just measure them in a month, yeah, they still have antibodies. Well, that's great. That's a month, right? I want a vaccine that lasts six months or a year, right? You don't want to get a shot every month. And so um, I think this phase three trials are going to take time. I think we're going to need a lot of time. But um, more information to follow. But I'd like to put you two on the spot and ask, like, what's your best guess? What's the rest of 2020 is going to look like? Um, I know that's just opinion. This is just our kind of uh, what we feel, and I'll give my opinion. But there's there's no real good information out there to say what 2020 is going to look like, but i just like to know your expert opinions.
2: I think we've talked about this off of the podcast as well. I do think that in the wintertime, when all the other viruses Tend to be more common. I think we will see a spike of upper respiratory cases or lower respiratory cases, whether that's coronavirus or not. And it's going to be really scary. We don't. We won't know if this is COVID or something else. And uh, I do think that we're going to see an uptick as the year goes on. Hopefully, we will all be figuring out ways that we've learned to cope with this and uh, we learn how to self-isolate and also live our lives and hopefully things get a little bit better. But I do think we'll see a little bit more of the virus before the end of the year.
0: your what's your views? I
1: think it might even be a little earlier. Like I think we're gonna see maybe an earlier flu season. So I feel like October is gonna be a rough month and normally we don't see a lot in October. So I just think we're just gonna see more of it earlier in the fall too. But that's just my opinion. I have no idea.
0: Yeah, you know, my opinion is similar because I feel like we usually have an RSV season that's coming up and we have a flu season that's coming up. And then now we're going to have our continued COVID season, right? It hasn't, even if it dips down a little bit, it's still going to be there. And the combination of those three, so we have a kid with a fever and wheezing, it's like, is this COVID or is this RSV, right? And those tests, I think, depending on testing and testing resources and testing reagents, are we going to be able to tell that this is RSV and not COVID? And then can RSV and COVID be together, which I think it can be. So I think that's going to be a real challenge in medicine of like, who can we send home? Who do we need to keep? And then overwhelming our resources, And then I think um, PPE is like our new future. I can't imagine that PPE is going to go away in 2020. Um, I was doing some research on the Spanish flu, and it seems like it took them multiple years, which I'm really sad. So two to three years. I was sharing this information with my husband, and my eight-year-old overheard, and he just stopped and was like, what? (laughs) We have to stay home for three years? And I was like, no, 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 no. We don't have to be home for three years. But I think we're going to be wearing PPE for years to come. So, on that happy note, uh, we're going to wrap it up with COVID. We'll be doing uh, more COVID episodes.
1: So, thank you all for listening. And
0: thanks for being here. Thank
2: you.
1: Thanks. podcast at americanambulance.com once again that's podcast at americanambulance.com thanks
3: thank you for joining us on the american ambulance ems podcast produced by american ambulance in fresno california the views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of american ambulance or ucsf fresno The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.